0: Hi, Welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Morehart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Now, this has been a busy week here at ALA headquarters and uh, at libraries across the country. This is Banned Books Week. It's just wrapping up. Now, Banned Books Week is an annual event celebrating the freedom to read. Typically, it's held during the last week of September, and it highlights the value of free and open-accessed information. It brings together the entire book community, librarians, booksellers, publishers, journalists, teachers, readers. Everyone comes together in shared support of the freedom to seek and to express ideas, even those those ideas that some consider unorthodox or unpopular. By focusing on efforts across the country to remove or restrict access to books either in libraries, schools, bookstores, wherever, Banned Books Week draws national attention to the harms of censorship. Yeah, as unbelievable as it sounds, book censorship, either in the form of challenges or outright bannings, still takes place. It sounds like a tactic ripped straight from our unpleasant past or some dystopian novel, but it happens to scores of books each year. This month on Dewey Decibel, we add more voices to the cause. Joining us this episode is James LaRue. He's the director of ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the executive director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. James and I discuss the current state of book censorship in the U.S. and what libraries can do if and when they find themselves faced with such a situation. Next, we talk to Sarah Stevenson. Sarah's a librarian at O. Henry Middle School in Austin, Texas, and she recently experienced a rather arduous book challenge at her school. Sarah and I discuss that experience and how she weathered it. Finally, we open up an American Library's time capsule and revisit an interview that I conducted in 2014 with Marjan Satrapi. She's the author of the acclaimed graphic novel, Persepolis, and the director of the film adaptation, uh, which was uh, nominated for an Oscar in 2008. Marjan's novel was banned at a Chicago high school in 2013, and I spoke with her about that situation, book banning in general, and much more. But first, a word from a sponsor. Year after year, a majority of the titles in ALA's banned books list, which compiles titles threatened with censorship, are books for teens and children. It's important for young adult and children's librarians to understand the types of challenges occurring in libraries across the nation and be ready to deal with such challenges when they do occur. Two books from ALA Editions will help prepare you to champion intellectual freedom for young people. Kristen Fletcher Speer, Kelly Tyler, and Yulsa have tailored a book specifically for the young adult staff. Intellectual Freedom for Teens, a practical guide for young adult and school librarians, provides much needed guidance on the highly charged topic of intellectual freedom for teens. And in Books Under Fire, a hit list of banned and challenged children's books, Pat Scales offers the information and guidance you need to defend challenged books with an informed response while ensuring access to young book lovers. Both titles are available at the ALA store. For more information, go to alastore.ala.org. James LaRue is the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, and he's the executive director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. Before joining us at ALA about a year or so ago, he was the longtime director of Douglas County Libraries in Colorado. Both at Douglas County and here at ALA, James has been on the front lines dealing with freedom to read and book censorship issues. I sat down with James recently to discuss book banning, how and why it happens, and what librarians can do if they find themselves in the midst of such a situation. Before we start, for our listeners... um, can we talk about what is the difference actually between a banning and a challenge? Because you hear those two words um, mentioned often in certain situations like this. What, are the, what is the difference between the two of those?
1: Yeah, pretty straightforward. Well, actually, there's like a third term, which is complaint. Oh, okay. okay. So if somebody comes in and they say, I hate this book, you can just say, I hate it too. <laughs> you know, that's, that's neither a challenge nor a ban. So complaining about book is normal. But if someone comes in and they say, not just that I object to the book, but I want the book removed or I want it restricted, I want it recataloged so you still have it but nobody can find it, that's a formal challenge. If who's ever in charge, so a school principal, a library board, a director says, I agree with you, we will remove the book even though it fits our collection development policy, then it's banned in that institution. A lot of people freak out about this. They say, no book is banned in America. You can still buy it on Amazon. You can still find it somewhere in the United States. But as we often point out, if you happen to be living in a small town in Nevada, and it's 80 minutes to the nearest bookstore, and and the library is only open on Tuesdays and Thursdays afternoons, and you don't have a credit card to buy something from Amazon, the book may as well be burned. It's Mm -hmm. just not available.
0: Now, for what reasons um, are books commonly challenged? And uh, who, who are Presenting these challenges, are they are they parents, are they teachers, outside forces? Um, two separate questions there, but I guess we can start. With what reasons are you finding that most books are receiving challenges for?
1: You know, it's, I have tried. To, I was a library director before I came here, and we eventually dealt with two hundred and fifty challenges. When I hit the one hundred and fifty challenge point, I pulled them all out and I said, "What is in common with these books?" And what I found was that ninety nine percent of the books that were challenged in Colorado that I dealt with and I think this holds true pretty much across the nation, it falls into two categories. They were uh, parents between the, of children between the ages of 4 and 6, or parents of children between the ages of 14 and 16. And so I started off believing that it must be religious versus secular or conservative versus liberal, but what I learned was that almost all the time it's a parent who says, I am uncomfortable with the fact that my child has just reached one of these watersheds, and they've gone from infant to um, young child or or it's the end of childhood and they're becoming a teenager. So that's often what they're complaining about is anything that has to do with one of those transitions. So if it's 14 to 16, it's about sex and language and drugs. If it's from four to six, it could be about anything that um, ends the innocence of childhood. Mm
0: -hmm. And um, now the Office for Intellectual Freedom, you receive number of challenges each year you tally these challenges. Yeah. Um, how many I know we're, 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 the year is still, we're, still, we're still going out here in September. How many have you received this year thus far?
1: Well, actually, before I get to that I want to back up a, a second and say so. I started off by saying most of the challenges that libraries receive are you know about this uh, parents worried about their kids, but we have begun to notice at the office that many of the challenges coming in now are very specific about what the, the question is. And so uh, two years ago, eight out of the top ten most challenged were about d- by diverse authors or about diverse content. Last year, nine out of the ten. So now when you say, what are people uh, actually questioning, it seems to be a worried majority of um, white cis male, men and women who are very worried about diversity in general. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of the theme of this, we- this year's Ban Books Week. Yeah, if you look
0: at just from the last year's, the, the top 10 list that you put out last year, I mean, you look at um, uh, Jazz Jennings' book. You also have, uh, it was it Susan Kuklin's book? A lot of these books, they're dealing with um, transgender children. Yeah, transgender
1: uh, teens in particular. Yeah,
0: homosexuality. So, yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Um, now, to this year, and um, that was 2015, and you're probably still, I'm sure you're still working on the 2016 numbers um what's this number what's this year look like compared to the last year so far are, are same themes but actually
1: I would say right now the numbers look like they are again down and I wish I could say that was good news but my fear is that more of the challenges seem to be coming in from schools and more of them are successful hmm. and I think that this is directly tied to the uh, the fact that we have fewer children's librarians than we used to have and so when a parent comes in and complains they go oh well I guess maybe we shouldn't have that they don't know that there was a collection development policy that was used to purchase the book. They don't know that there was a request for reconsideration protocol to follow when somebody complains about it. And they don't know that when they give the pull the book that they're supposed to report it to somebody. Mm-hmm. So even though the number of challenges looks like it's falling somewhat, I suspect that the incidence is rising.
0: Now, what's um, in the history of OIFs, even gathering these stats, what's um, just just for, for historic, for, for history. What's been the most challenged book?
1: Oh, by, by and large, um, Huckleberry Finn. Hmm, interesting. You know, for one thing, it's been around the longest. And the other thing is that America has always been deeply divided about the issue of race. Yeah. And so it used to be the challenges with, you know, this book is too colloquial. In fact, if you go back to what librarians were saying about Huckleberry Finn when it first came out, they said, this isn't, this isn't literature. It's too, it's too ordinary. It sounds like ordinary speech. And then it was, it was, "This is too coarse." And then it was, "We're talking about slavery and we shouldn't talk about it." And then it's being protested uh, in the Civil Rights era because of the N-word. You know So you know that a book is classic when it irritates generation after generation of Americans. Yeah:
0: <laughs> Now, um, you're a librarian or a library, and you are being presented with a complaint or a challenge, um, what should you do? What steps should a library take? Um, in both situations.
1: Yeah, great question and I think the the best answer is don't wait for the challenge to get ready. So the first thing to do is to go off and buy our intellectual freedom manual, uh, the ninth edition, and start adopting the policies that you need. At minimum 100% every library in the United States should have a collection development policy. 100% of the libraries in the United States should have adopted the Library Bill of Rights. 100% 100% of them should have a request for reconsideration policy. If you don't have those things, you will have books censored from your collection. That's a fact. So that's where you start. And then I think the, the second thing is that when somebody comes in and they you know, bang their fist on the table and throw a book in front of you and say, this book is disgusting, I think um, the best thing to do is to be polite. And I always say you start off by saying, oh, I'm so sorry, because they probably didn't come in looking to be upset that day, mm-hmm. right? They came in looking for something, and that's not what they found. And then you say, well, I'm sorry. What's the nature of your complaint? What bothered you? And then you pay attention to them, and you listen to them, and nod at them, and show them that you are honestly trying to understand the complaint. The third thing you do is say, let me restate that so you know that I get it. So you're saying that the problem is, and you restate the complaint. And then at that point, I think the shift happens where you say, well, what were you looking for? what did you come in looking for and recognize that at that point they could go off again and say well I wasn't looking for this and you say well of course but what were you looking for because at that point the complaint is really a failed service transaction and if I can get you to say "All right, I understand that you know what I'm upset about but I actually came in looking for books about trains for my little boy I can help you find books about trains for your little boy so I try to move into the successful transaction Now, that's all well and good, and 98% of the time, that will take care of the problem. For the remaining 2%, they're going to say, I want to do something about this book. I want to remove it. I want it to be gone. Who do I talk to? And then at that point, you follow the policy. And the policy for request for reconsideration, I give you a form that says, what's the name of the book? What did you object to? Did you read all of it? Can you tell me the parts that bothered you? Is there something else that would be a better book about this topic for you that you could recommend. And then once you have that form, you follow the policy which requires some sort of objective review. Um, Typically, when I was doing this, I would say, I would receive the form and I would mail the person, these are all of the policies that we have adopted. You may find them, you know, I'm not doing this just to overwhelm you with paperwork, but we've thought long and hard about these things and we try to live up to them. That gives them a chance to cool down and it reminds them that there is some systematic thinking about the governance of the library. And then after that, somebody reads the book. In schools, it tends to be a committee. Public libraries could be a committee. But it means more than one person, more than one perspective. And they say, does this book meet our collection development policy? Yes or no? And then they come back with a recommendation, typically to a director, to say, it should be kept, it should be recatalogued, it should be removed, you should buy more copies. You know, there's various ways to respond. And then the director typically writes the letter to the person to say, this is my decision and here's why. And then often there is an appeal. The appeal could be, I don't like this position. I don't like what the director said. I want to appeal to the board of trustees. Or it might be if you're a school, don't like your decision. I want to appeal to the library or the, the school board. So after that, you just follow the policy.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you something, said something very interesting when um, in the initial stage... Um, in the form that you give the complainant, there's something you said, have you read all of it? Have you read
1: the whole book? Yeah, Yeah, that's right.
0: Is that common? Because it was interesting, in our next segment, um, I speak with Sarah Stevenson from O. Henry Middle School in in Austin, Texas, and we discuss um, the challenge that they received for looking for Alaska John Green's book. And there were two parents who challenged that book. One had read the book. The other had not read the book at all. Mm -hmm. Just that its mere existence was enough to set them off. Which I
1: would say is is most common is that the whole book has not been read. And often, recently in Virginia, there was an attempt to say these books should not be on any sort of reading list at all. And the campaign to say, or at least we have to notify the parents that this terrible sexual content or drug content or language is in this book. And then to prove it, they would stand up at a school board uh, meeting and they would read passage after random passage. Mm -hmm. Well, I could do that to the Bible. And you'd say, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? You know, so the, the point is is that you can't judge a book by four or five sections of it. Mm-hmm. It has to be the whole
0: book. Yeah. Um, now, you had mentioned the um, Intellectual Freedom Manual. What other um, uh, avenues and opportunities do ALA and OIF offer for a library facing a challenge? If they would come to you, how can you help?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that if you're in trouble, you know, you're facing something, call us, okay? Look us up online, Office for Intellectual Freedom online, and uh, you can call us or you can email us and let us know that the problem is going on. That is a confidential conversation. Nobody's going to find out about it from us unless it goes public and then we talk about the public piece of it. And so when, we, when you talk to us, the first thing we give you is a friendly voice. You know, you are not alone. Someone else has gone through this. You are not the first person to have to go through it. Uh, we give you coaching. We can do review research for you. The book is challenged. We know about the book probably. Almost certainly it's been challenged before. We can give you information to defend it. We'll coach you through the process. We'll say, let's take a look at your policies. Let's take a look at your procedures for handling this within a school. And then uh, we're kind of getting into some things, too, where I like to give some what I think of as executive coaching. Often a school librarian will say, I'm worried that I might lose my job if I protest about this book. And I would say to that school librarian, you might save your principal's job, and let's help you make that case. So you can walk in and talk to the principal and say, we know of cases where... A book got pulled from the collection, it gets out in the community. People say, well, why did the principal do that? He didn't even follow his own policies. I said, so the reason we have these policies is to calm everybody down, let us have a deliberate conversation about it, so this policy makes sense for us to protect our school. So we'll give that kind of coaching. We might write a letter to the editor, we might write a letter to the school board. Uh, What else might we do? Media interviews. Because sometimes people in the area aren't quite sure how to talk about this. We do lots of interviews with newspapers, radio shows, and TV shows. And we can kind of be the face for this intellectual freedom thing to take some of the heat off the local people.
0: Okay, And what is the, um, the URL for your website?
1: Uh, the easiest way to get to us is ala.org slash offices OIF.
0: All right, great. James LaRue, thanks so much for sticking with us today. My pleasure. We're with James LaRue, Director of ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the Executive Director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Many thanks to James LaRue from the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the Freedom to Read Foundation. If you find yourself facing a challenge or banning it, please reach out to him and the rest of the oif staff who is overdrive it's a good question overdrive offers a catalog of over 3 million ebooks audiobooks streaming video and periodicals with support for all major computers and devices all of their digital media is available on a single platform streamlining the user experience and staff management and the best part with overdrive patrons can access your collection 24/7 all your e- ebooks audiobooks, periodicals, and streaming videos available day or night because there's no such thing as a typical patron. Check them out at overdrive.com. Sarah Stevenson has been a librarian at O. Henry Middle School in Austin, Texas for the past 13 years. She's an energetic presence with a real verve and passion for her work. And early this year, two parents of O. Henry students presented a formal challenge to a book that Sarah kept in her library's collection, it was John Green's award-winning young adult novel, Waiting for Alaska. It was an experience that proved both both educational and emotionally taxing for Sarah. I spoke with her about the challenge, why it happened, what she learned from it, and what she has to say to librarians in the same boat.
2: The, the, bu- the book in question at your school that was, was challenged, uh, John Green's Looking for Alaska, why did you choose this particular book for your library, for your students, and how long had has the had the book been in rotation at the school?
3: Well, the book came out in 2005, and it won the um, Prince Award, which is like the Newbery for young adult literature. Mm-hmm. Um, it won the award in 2006, and so I heard, had read great reviews of it, and so I had read the book, and I was wondering if I should include it in the collection because there's one scene in there yeah. that's a little bit graphic and um, a, an oral sex scene, mm-hmm. and so. I wasn't sure about it, and then I went to the Texas Library Association, and I I went to go hear John Green, and he was, you know, this was his first book, so he was kind of an unknown at the time, and um, there was one woman in the audience, and she asked, she said, oh, Mr. Green, she said, I love your book so much, but why, oh, why did you put that one scene in, because now I can't recommend it to anyone. And so you could see he was, um, you know, trying to calm himself because he was pretty angry and he took a deep breath and he went into this long explanation, you know, that it wasn't gratuitous, that it was put in there for a reason because it was to contrast a sexual act with someone you don't care about. And then a few pages later, he actually kisses the girl Alaska that he's been obsessed with and in love with for the whole year and just one kiss is so much more meaningful to him than this little experiment that a girl offers to do on him earlier and that scene it's it's i mean from an adult perspective it's it's very cringe-worthy and awkward <laughs> and and it's a it's a fail and it, you know and um but you know it does it's very and it's very clinically described and he did that for a reason he also um talked about when he was at boarding school he had a a professor, um, he had a teacher who took them all the way to Atlanta to see Angels in America. This is during the whole AIDS thing, and just how powerful it was for him, and how much he admired that teacher for respecting young people enough that they could handle this. And so he felt like it was, you know, that yeah, certain pe- young people couldn't handle it, but that certain young people could handle it, and that it was there for a reason. It was not gratuitous, and So that kind of gave me the courage to try it. So I had this eighth grade book club. And so I got some copies of the book and I kind of test drove it with them. And we had great discussions. It's a wonderful book. Um, It has all kinds of great lessons about being the new kid, bullying, um, you know, drugs and alcohol. It's it's very philosophical, unrequited love. It's just got so many things that that young people can relate to. And then, um, you know, when we got to that, time to talk about that scene. I said that we wouldn't actually say what it was and I listened to what the kids had to say about it and I was so impressed with their maturity that I decided okay I'm gonna put it in the library and so I went ahead and just to remind my assistant I put a little YA sticker on it I didn't tell the kids about it but it was just a little warning to tell little sixth graders oh this isn't a sixth grade book and that's what I do with books like that and they usually put them back because I was determined not to have a library where every book was appropriate for the youngest 11-year-old. I mean, I just don't believe in that. In fact, I really depend on my eighth graders to read. And they're the reader leaders of the school. And if they're reading, the younger kids will read. And so, and I want to serve them because they're part of my population. What happened was um, the success of, with the movies of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns, John Green became this big star. Mm And so, um, what happened was last spring, about last May, a seventh grade class was in the library, and the seventh grade English teacher had not read Looking for Alaska, and he had a student who had read Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns and loved them, and he was trying to help her find a book, and so I said, "Oh, look, try this one, Looking for Alaska." And so, when she got to that scene, she showed her mother, as she should have done, and her mother objected, as her mother has every right to object. So I had conversations with her. Uh, They went very well. I supported her and her decision for her child. And I thought that everything was going well. And then um, I thought it was all settled. And then we had a really unfortunate thing happen at our school. We had a teacher who was sending inappropriate texts to a student and it blew up and it was in the newspaper. And I think it made a lot of people afraid So then she called me up and said, what what was your decision? And I said, well, you know, I haven't made a decision. I wanted to talk to my English department. But for right now, I would like to keep it in the library. And um, I don't like to have an eighth-grade restricted shelf because it goes against the Library Bill of Rights, where you're not supposed to discriminate based on age. And... um, you know we've had this book in the library for ten years, and I'm really sorry what happened to with your daughter, but um, you know there's a lot of children who really like this book, and it's won all kinds of awards and has literary merit and I'd like to keep it in the collection. She disagreed with me, which is great, and she um told another woman who whose daughter had not read the book, and that woman called me up and just let into me and it was so upsetting. I mean, I I, I started crying, and I called my library supervisor. I hid under my desk. (laughs) I'm so upset. Basically, she was saying that it was filth in the library, and they expected when they sent their kids to school for their kids to be safe, and I was corrupting the youth, and it was horrible. So all of a sudden, all my courage, you know, from library school where we – we do these like role plays of you know defending books and all this stuff, and I'd always been you know so courageous and had you know you know edgy books in my library for my eighth graders, and suddenly like I just had this horrible depression. <laughs> and um, anyway, I had a wonderful conversation with my library supervisor, and she explained, you know, you know, take a breath. We have a policy in place. Thank goodness our district has a policy. So then I went to my principal and we went through the policy. So that I, I, I completely got out of the negotiations at that point because it had reached a really bad place. So um both mothers filed a complaint. They had to read the whole book. I got to see one of the complaints. I never saw the other complaint, but the reasonable mom, the one that I respect, she wrote these were her reasons for having it banned. Um smoking, alcohol, drugs. I don't even remember the drugs. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, this is the one. The, Hurts their morals, makes kids curious. Those were her reasons. And I have lots of books that, I mean, that deal, that have some drugs and alcohol in them. I have books where, you know, the parents are horrible, alco- neglectful alcoholics. And I have books with suicide and cutting. And, you know, there's some children that really like to read those books and find them very, um, cathartic and, you know, what they call bibliotherapy. You know, I I don't want to have Disneyland in my library. That's not what it's about. So I wrote a defense that I later um, revised and and made a blog for Knowledge Quest about the whole process, but how I felt about it. And then um, at the end of August, right before school started, the committee met and they voted to retain the book, but they wanted it restricted to eighth graders. And so, of course, I had to accept the um, decision of the committee. Part of me was grateful, even though, as I said, it goes against my my values, against the eighth grade shelf. But part of me was happy because I felt like if those parents had lost, particularly one of the moms who was so um, irate, I was worried that that they might go to the superintendent, that it would go on, that they might go to the press, that they would come in and scrutinize all of my collection. So I felt like, okay, you know, this is this is good, you know. So I had a change of heart. I thought, okay, I, I can live with this.
2: Now um was this you you had mentioned that you had done some preparations for this in library school. Um and was this the first book challenge that you had ever faced? Absolutely.
3: Yeah, I I've had. I've, I've had. I'm. I'm so thankful at, at my school. It's a really great community here in Austin, Texas. We're, we're kind of a liberal city for Texas. Very open-minded. You know, the mm-hmm. University of Texas is here. I, most of the parents know that it's their role to to look into what their children are reading, and so they know that you know I'm not the policeman. <laughs> Yeah. And um, that I offer, you know, we've got a wide range of beliefs and value systems and, 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 you know, parenting styles, all kinds of things. So my job is to provide access to books that I think are worthy to be included in the library. Uh, I had, uh when Golden Compass, I don't know if you remember this, but it was considered anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I did have a father talk to me about that. His daughter was in my book club, and we were going to read – we were reading Golden Compass because the movie was coming out, and I thought it was a great book. And he um, sent me a bunch of articles about it, and so I said, okay, you know, I'll read the whole series. So I read the whole series because I am a Catholic. And, um, you know, I I felt like the author, Philip Pullman, had a few little barbs, anti-church barbs, but, you know – it was, it's fantasy, you know, it's about, you know, armored polar bears and witches and,
1: you know, I just,
3: anyway, and he never, but th- I want to give this father credit, he never wanted me to take it out of the library. He just explained why his daughter was going to pass on it for the book club. She did not get out of the book club. She kept going to the meeting. She just sat quietly during the discussions. And so I felt like it was a good discussion, and I really appreciated that father because he encouraged me to read the entire trilogy. Often I'll just read the first book in a series just because so many books, so little time. And so, um, so he, he was great. The other one I had was there was a book, um, *A Stolen Life* by J.C. Dugard, and it's written for adults. And it's about it's a true story. It's a biography of a woman who was abducted as a teenager and held for like 12 years. But, um, there were some of my um students who really who never read, and they really, really liked this book. A mother came to see me, her son had checked it out, and she said, "Ms Stevenson, have you read this book?" And I said, "No, I haven't read it. I've read about it and she says, "Well I think you should read it." So I read it, and I decided that it was too graphic, and so I took it out of the collection and I sent it to one of my friends who's a high school librarian. Even though I think the book has lots of value, and I admire so much the writer for being explicit, it was too explicit for middle school, and so I had made a mistake. I have a lot of empathy for librarians, especially middle school librarians, because I think for for grade school, it's pretty easy. You wouldn't put Perks of Being a Wallflower, or you, know, you wouldn't even think about looking for Alaska in a, in a grade school library. Mm-hmm. High school... At least in Austin, anything goes, you know, except they're high school, you know, they're high school kids. So um, I do think middle school is in a very precarious situation because there is such a range in maturity, interest level between the 11-year-olds and the 14-year-olds. And so I think it's very, very tricky. I also have empathy for librarians in conservative communities. There was a librarian here in my district, and she had a book challenge. and It was devastating for her. I mean, the parents started a Facebook page. They um, were, you know, going to the press. They, um, you know, she was just horrified. She she said it was awful. She felt sick at her stomach. Her committee voted unanimously to keep the book in the collection. The parents went to our superintendent, who overrode the district's own policy, and put it on a restricted 8th grade shelf you know.
2: yeah it's, it's 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 interesting like um i think some of the examples you you gave just now with with dealing with the JC Dugard book um and some of the books that you bumped up to the high school level because you had heard from parents or you would read the book yourself you it you show perfectly how it is an evolving process yes a, yes a, an appro- appropriate collection for a particular middle school that those rough not rough years but very particular years for kids um it i think it shows how Everyone can be level-headed and calm, and you can find a, a solution to a lot of these problems um, that arise with certain books. Now, what advice do you have for librarians that might find themselves in a, a similar challenge or potential banning situation?
3: I would, first of all, um, you know, it's funny. I had kept my, my notes from library school, <laughs> and they're, um, they're yellowed. But I, I have a little folder. I'm so old-fashioned. I'm fifty almost fifty seven. I had um a folder and um I called censorship and I went and I looked at my notes and um I love this I love the notes that I took in library school and um, it says selection versus censorship, and I think librarians should really think about that, because selection is not censorship, and you know your population, and you know your students and your community, and so when you decide not to have a book in your library, you are not censoring it, you are using your judgment, and trust that judgment, okay? So um, so these are what the notes say. Um, selection versus censorship, so I have two columns liberty of thought versus thought control values book as a whole versus nitpicking that certainly applies to looking for alaska positive versus negative i really believe that young people we don't give them enough credit i have students that will tell me miss stevenson this book has a bad word and i said thank you so much for letting me know please turn it in and check out something else and then i put it back on the shelf. You know, i mean, they know and they, you know, they'll either skip over it or they'll turn it in, you know, and they they know when they're not ready. Um, positive versus negative presumption of value versus presumption of fa- fault protects the rights of the reader versus seeks to protect reader from imagined harm in a book. And this i love this one. Faith and intelligence of the reader versus faith only in the censor's intelligence democratic versus authoritarian and conf- and then on the other on the bad side confuses books presence with the school's endorsement and that's when i did some research and I'm um, incredibly thankful to ALA i mean just i just feel so great to have this professional organization many professional organizations AASL the Texas Library Association i feel i felt so supported because I think a, library, a lot of librarians and a lot of people who don't know assume that when you have the book, you're endorsing it. No, I have Mein Kampf in my library. I do not endorse it. I don't know who put it in there. <laughs> it's it's um, The copyright is like 1949, but I keep it in there because I found it and I thought, wow, you know, somebody might really want to know what Hitler wrote in 1925 when he was in prison. They might really want to know about his offensive beliefs. I, of course, don't endorse it. But it's that whole freedom to read, that liberty of thought, that access to information that's so beautiful about our profession. And I felt like, and I feel like that, that gave me courage when, like I said, I was crying under my desk. (laughs) And, you know, I just had to take a breath and, you know, and, you know, realize The other thing I want to bring up, sorry, is this whole thing about sex. A lot of the books have sex in them, and I think a lot of people maybe don't even realize about the sex. There's a lot of books with sex, and that's a good thing because, that's you know, we have sex. That's a reality and there should be sex in the books because teenagers are having sex. You know, again, I don't want to have anything really graphic, but it's interesting to me that it's the oral sex that freaks people out, but regular sex they don't see. I mean, this mother who objected to looking for Alaska didn't seem to have a problem with her child reading The Fault in Our Stars, and you know, there's some inappropriate things in paper towns. There's certainly drinking, and you know, some of the things she objected to when looking for Alaska. But I do think that, you know, and then people don't object to Hunger Games where children are killing other children. Mm -hmm. They never object to violence. I mean, it's kind of interesting about our society, what sets people off.
2: Sarah Stevenson from O. Henry Middle School, thank you so much for talking with us today.
3: I really appreciate um, contacting me. I really appreciate having an opportunity to reach out. I really do want to help other librarians. And I hope that if anyone is in this situation, that they will feel free to reach out to me. I mean, they can find me through email. I would love to offer support because it's it's very very unpleasant. I don't want to downplay it at all. I feel fine now, but I I was in a dark place.
2: I can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's um. You know, since we're in the middle of banned books week now, and uh, American Libraries Magazine we do we cover a lot of banned book situations, and uh, it's it can be intense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the vitriol I think that gets thrown around um, at like and the, the fear yeah. and I think
3: I mean and I understand the fear I mean all the stuff that's out there for kids these days all the pornography the yeah. sexting I under I completely get while the parents are freaked out I really really understand and empathize with the parents concern. I just don't believe taking a book out of a collection is going to solve those problems
0: Thanks again to Sarah Stevenson from O. Henry Middle School in Austin, Texas, for taking time to speak with Dewey Decimal Podcast. You can check our Twitter feed for the Knowledge Quest blog that uh, she mentioned. In it, she delves even deeper into her book challenge experience. It's a fascinating read about a frustrating situation. Navigating the home video market can be a daunting task. Hundreds of DVDs, Blu-ray discs, and digital-only films are released each month. Now if you're a librarian tasked with stocking your branch with the latest films for your patrons, or just a movie buff looking to add to your home collection, you need as your guide a trusted source with its pulse on the market and the industry. Video Librarian Magazine is that source. Video Librarian is a video review magazine for public, school, academic, and special libraries as well as for film fans who are interested in a wider variety of films that are found in the average video store or online outlet. Written by Video Librarian staff, librarians, teachers, and film critics, the magazine offers over 200 reviews each issue. Now, Full disclosure, in addition to my role as Associate Editor of American Libraries, I'm uh, also a freelance film critic for Video Librarian magazine. Now, Am I biased? Yeah, sure, maybe a little bit. But um, I'll say this, if you've ever picked up a copy of Video Librarian and just skinned its pages, you can't help be wowed by the volume and depth of its content. Every kind of film imaginable can be found reviewed in its pages. Seriously, there's something for everybody. It's a must-read. Visit VideoLibrarian.com to learn more. In March of 2013, the graphic novel Persepolis, the story of a childhood, by Iranian author Marjan Satrapi was removed from the library at Lane Tech College Prep High School here in Chicago. The award-winning graphic novel details Satrapi's life as a young girl living in Iran during the Iranian Revolution. The initial removal order it was given without addressing any of the real reasons for the removal, but it may have been prompted by objections to the book's depiction of torture, particularly a single frame of art, just one frame, showing a torture victim being urinated upon, whipped, and burned with an iron by his captors. Now The removal it created a real maelstrom here in Chicago and garnered the attention of local press and national press as well. There were student protests at Lane Tech. ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the Freedom Read Foundation held press conferences. And to their credit, they really pressed Chicago Public Schools uh, for more information on their removal. They had uh, submitted FOIA requests and more. Now, I covered the whole situation for American Libraries Magazine, and I must admit it was really a a whirlwind of activity around that time. Um, Ultimately, after criticism and complaints from parents, teachers, and the public, the directed to pull Persepolis from Chicago Public Schools was reversed. Um, though, however, there was a caveat, the book was removed from 7th grade classrooms. Now in 2014, one year after all this rigmarole, I spoke with Marjan Satrapi via phone from her home in Paris. We discussed her book and its inspirations, but most importantly, we discussed the situation at Lane Tech. And she had some very, very specific opinions about it. For this very special banned books episode of Dewey Decibel, we decided to crack the American Library's interview vault to revisit my talk with Marjan. It was a conversation that still proves very relevant years later. What led you to, to write about your youth in Iran and, and in the late 70s and that period of time after that? What was the, uh, the impetus? What led to that?
4: Well, you know, the thing was that I, uh, I lived in the, in the West, you know, for, for quite a while and uh you know like the first time that I left uh, to for Austria I was 14 that was 84 and and uh then the second time it was at 94 when I left and every time you know I heard people you know they have uh, people they have all kind of prejudices uh and people they trust too much the information that they hear then most of the time the information especially about countries like mine you really making the most sensational stuff, you know, that, that to, to be able to sell. So, you know, people, they were thinking, you know, I don't know what they were thinking, but the idea that they had them at my country and how this whole thing went was completely wrong. So, you know, I kept on telling this story, this story over and over and over and over. And it's not so much that I didn't like to say it, but I didn't like to repeat myself because every time it was the same thing. And at the moment it it, it became like uh an obligation from my side you know like i had to write that because i was so fed up and so bored by all these kind of prejudices and misunderstanding that people had and i can i couldn't do anything else but you know writing about myself because you know i'm not a politician i'm not a historian i'm not a sociologist I, i'm not nothing like that it, it happened that i'm born in a certain place in a certain time and as much as, as I can be uncertain and unsure about it, lots of things, um, I, I know what I have lived. So that's why I wrote it in the first person, in my name, because otherwise it would have been like an analysis, a political or historical analysis that I'm really not uh, the person to, to, to the, the, that has been made for. And little by little, I, you know, I thought that the this, this story was very personal, but then. That was God of Iranian. That they did. That say that was the story of their life. But then I understood that it was lots of connection, also with other people. You know, one time I remember that was in America. That was this young guy from Arkansas, and he told me, "Oh, do you know what uh, we?" and i totally understand what you're talking about and i was like you from arkansas and he was like yeah you know like you could not listen to the rock music because it was banned in your country but i could not listen to my to rock music because my for my very religious parents rock music was satan music so i didn't have the right to say to listen to it either so you know Repression, whatever it is, it comes from your family, from a government, from whatever. Repression is repression, and feeling oppressed is, is the same thing everywhere. So in a very incredible way, it, it had an echo in all sorts of other people that I was not aware of.
0: But why did you decide to tell your story uh, using the graphic novel form? Um, and what does the graphic novel offer that other mediums don't
4: well uh, this the, the, the thing was that you know like i didn't know so much you know about comics and gra- graphic novels and i used to read comics when i was a child but uh, you know basically i read uh, batman and uh, dracula i was not very much fan of superman because i thought that he was like too tidy and too nice and you know like i could never be superman but i could easily imagine that I could be a uh, Batman and Dracula in some extent, I, I thought I could be one too. But that was for me, what was about the comic books. And then I came to France and they offered me mouth of a And I was like, Oh my God, a comic book. <laughs> and then I started reading it. And suddenly the whole world opened to me because I think with images, I, you know, and when I start now with the age, it has changed a little bit. But at the time when I start writing, then I say to myself, you have to write at least like Dostoevsky or Hemingway. And uh, well, you know, if you compare yourself to the, Stoy- the Stoyevsky or Hemingway, then you should stop writing right away, because you know, there is no way you can beat them. And so I took myself very much seriously. I was like, now I have to write. And so the seriousness made my writing extremely heavy, not fun for one beat, extremely boring. Uh, I, I, I became very boring and with the drawing I had the possibility to make it lighter because I think a story like that, it's it's horrible by itself, so you don't need to add to it. And uh, the use of sense of humor was also very important. And uh, because it's drawing, I could use my sense of humor because I think, you know, you have different level of language. You have uh, the very basic instinctive language, like me hungry, me thirsty, you know, you have uh, the language, you know, table, chair, you know, you talk about object. But then you go to the sentiment and uh, and feelings, and basically all the people around the world, they, uh, they cry for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. We cry because our mother is sick, because we have lost a child, because our lover has left us. But do we laugh for the same reasons? We don't. I think laughter... It's something so abstract about the notion of laughing. And uh, if you laugh with someone, then you have understood the soul of this, this someone, and then everything becomes easier. And uh, you see, you have some jokes, for example, that only make uh, laugh a family. Then you have a joke of a village, then you know a state, then a country. But then you have Charlie Chaplin. They can show Charlie Chaplin anywhere in the world, and people, they laugh. Or even, you know, like uh, Lauren Hardy is the same thing. So i don't say that i'm at the level of Laura and hardy and, and charlie chaplin but at the same time it was like if i can if people they can laugh with me then they easily can cry with me then they can understand my cause so and being someone who thinks with images uh, the words are never enough for me because the, the whatever you know the, i don't like to describe so much the things with the word i like really to go you know to what i consider like essential but whatever is surrounded by that it's much easier for me to make it in a drawing, and if you can draw
0: and write, why choose? Persepolis, the book, the the, the two books, um, they were banned very briefly here in Chicago at Wayne Tech High School, and it was removed briefly. I remember
4: it very well, yet. Yeah, it was yeah.
0: removed from the library shelves for a while for 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 like a few fa- panels in, in, in the book itself. What are your thoughts on that situation specifically, and especially considering that's really I think was the only challenge the books received in the U.S. at all, like what are your, what are your, your thoughts and feelings on that situation?
4: Well, it, it, me, it was very bizarre that it came from Chicago. Actually, you know, if it came from Arkansas, I don't know, uh, Wyoming, whatever, Utah, Mormon land, I wouldn't be surprised. I would say, okay, you know, this. Is, but that is Chicago.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, is uh, Chicago is not like you know, it's not like some lost place somewhere in the middle of the nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with the, with the whole history of Chicago, I was like, why Chicago? I was very happy because of the. You know, because I saw that, you know, the student, they were protesting, et cetera, et cetera. And I never understood. I mean, they were like, oh, that is a scene of torture when we see the penis of a man. I mean, come on, give me a break. Uh, These kids, you know, they're playing video games and they're killing thousands of people each second. What 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 are you talking about? And what penis? It's not like I made, you know, like a porn magazine or something. It's just one panel. They were so shocked about it. I thought that it was... Completely stupid. But, you know, the good thing with that is that all these people that ban things, it is like if they don't know, if they're completely unaware of what is the human being, you know. If even you take the story of the Bible, God said to Adam and Eve, do whatever you want, just don't eat the apple. What do they do first? They eat the apple. That's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. If you want to make an adolescent read a book, ban it. And they all want to read it because then you're rebellious. You know you your 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 did you read the band book? then everybody wants to read it, so it just makes the thing more popular. Why just not take it and explain it, and you know it's not like kids they're dumb. you know, I knew a lots of things when I was only five or six what the I don't know if it's the people they know what their kids are, what adolescents are, what their human nature is It's, it's quite bizarre that people in education they wouldn't know that, but these people for me, they're bureaucrats because actually i received so many emails and letters from the teachers you know that they were very much behind the book and so it it pleased me a lot it shocked me because it was chicago and it was not you know like some weird places and uh the you know it just it just it it made the book more popular like you you always do when you ban something banning something is never good it's never good if you want something you know if even if you don't agree you have just to if you, you know, you express yourself and you, you, you just explain why. But you don't ban because mm-hmm. you have some power. And this is not normal in the biggest democracy in the world. That is what I thought.
0: To that, I mean, you mentioned the fact that it's Chicago and it's surprising. Um, living in Paris, or, or does this happen often there?
4: Oh, no, there is nothing that is is banned in France, really. I don't have this experience. But at the same time, I have to say, I mean, I don't have the experience, you know, with uh, banning the books. But I have to say also... That uh, you know, you know, like American. Okay, they make a dirty war war in Vietnam, and they are the first people that make films about this dirty war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and not you know the Vietnamese make Vietnamese look like shit. You know, they really tell the story, and you 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 can feel that they are sorry about it. So this is this is the capacity that America has. Uh, in France, that is a, a film that is called Bataille Alger. That is about you know what happened. You know in in algeria you know with the french colonies and mm-hmm. what you know whatever the french they did they they, they they that this movie has been banned for i don't know 14 years or something and then they showed it the first time in the television that was a couple of years ago i don't know six seven years ago and it was like at midnight so you know uh, in france they have a problem with their history like uh okay we have colonized uh Places you have tortured people, but still, you know they have a problem swallowing it. Yeah, you were bad, so that's what they did. It's okay, but uh, in America, I think uh, there is less of this problem. Once they recognize that uh, something was was wrong, then they don't have any problem recognizing it for real. In in France, we have this problem. It takes longer time to to recognize what has happened really.
0: What a role did libraries and education play in shaping your experience? I know you get into that a bit in Persepolis I guess what role libraries and education play in shaping your experiences then and now and having lived in you know, Iran and Paris um, what can you see are the major differences I guess both as institutions and in terms of public perception in each in each country
4: well first of all I have to say that education is the education and, and culture is the basis of everything the reason you know I could come here and uh, I was extremely fast, fast uh, integrated. Okay, I spoke French because I was always in a French school. That is part of my education. But also because I had a lot of culture. So when you have culture, you can always uh, speak with other people. When you, The problem starts when you don't have anything in common. So I don't think that, you know... Uh, people actually they don't understand more because of the culture that they have than because of the nationality because you know you can i can have an you know like i don't know a super religious iranian when he's in front of me he must be he, he might be iranian but you know i will not understand what what at all what he's telling me mm-hmm. not one second and uh, then i will see, see some someone from the philippines and you know if he ha- and then i would understand them very well why because they have the same cultural background we, we have something in common so I think culture is very important just for the understanding of the other because you have a basis. And education really helps us to be less stupid and I, I think that it's always to be less, less stupid and more stupid. So basically, I, I did that if I put a hope in, in, in the world, uh, it will be in the education. Like if I was like the minister of the culture of the world, I or you know, if I had like the big power, I would just make it that any student, while they are... They, they are in the in you know, while they're in in school before the age of eighteen, they have to travel to the five continents. Mm -hmm. I think if you you travel and you see other people, then later on it will be much more difficult to go and make war to them because you know how you 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 know them, you know. So I think I knowing the other one, traveling, all of that is extremely important. Now I grew up in a family that books were very important, even though I was the only child I never had uh, a lot of toys. For my parents, you know, I had toys, you know, like a little bit for the New Year and then a little bit for, for, for my birthday, but I could have books, as many as I wanted. So I read a lot. My parents, they li- like to read, so, you know, I was, I was reading a lot. And that is what I think saved me all my life, the knowledge that I have uh, from reading. Then in my the country, during the show, that was books that was banned. After the revolution, that was other books that were banned, but they were in the black market, and obviously that was the book that we read the most. And uh, and uh, yeah, and to tell you the truth, the thing that happened in America because I have been okay now. I go, I mean, I speak in the colleges, but at the beginning when I came to America, basically I went a lot to to bookshops to you know you know, and I spoke to people and. This kind of thing, I have never seen the equivalent of that uh, in Europe. You don't have, you know, like this reading group and people that come to listen to a, to a writer, etc., etc. The people that like to read in America, they really like to read and they organize themselves and they really make things happen. So for me, you know, coming to America and doing that is is, is really rewarding. Every time I do it, I really have the feeling that people, they're really there to see you. They're really there, you know, to listen to you. So it's a a real exchange between me, the writer and the people that are in front of me, which is really cool. So yeah. And I read somewhere that uh, in America, you have more public libraries that you have McDonald's It's tell you how many it's to tell how many public libraries that they are in America a lot. Mm So that's good. That's good.
0: Thanks again to Marjan Satrapi for speaking with us. It was a couple years ago, but we still want to give her our thanks. If you are not read Persepolis, please just drop everything you're doing right now. Find the copy. You really don't know what you're missing. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks to all of our guests, and especially to you for listening. Uh, as always, you can check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Talk to us. We want to talk to you. Leave us feedback. Give us some show ideas. Really, anything. Throw it at us. We want to know. Um, Join us next month for a very, very special episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. It's our Halloween episode. And uh, we're really going for it this time. We're going to dive into some haunted libraries, some uh, magic collections, and uh, much, much more. This is one you do not want to miss. Until then, I'm Phil Morehart from American Libraries Magazine, and this has been the Dewey Decimal Podcast. We'll see you next month.
3: I don't want to have Disneyland in my library. That's not what it's about.